I'm Chris Lindstrom, and this is the Food About Town podcast. This episode of the Food About Town podcast is brought to you by Frankly. That's P-H-R-A-N-K dot L-Y. Frankly is the best way to find out how your favorite restaurants source their products and also how to find that specialty good you love so much. I did an article recently for Frankly about Ugly Duck Coffee, one of my favorite coffee shops in Rochester, and how they conscientiously source coffee from around the country and also do a lot of local as well. So check that out on foodabouttown.com or on the Medium website under Frankly. That's P-H-R-A-N-K dot L-Y. In episode 62 of the Food About Town podcast, I talked with Donnie Clutterbuck, the bar manager at Cure, and just one of my favorite people to talk to in Rochester. We did some of his history. We spent a little bit more time talking about his time at Booker and Dax in New York versus the first time I had him on the podcast when we were talking Rochester Cocktail Revival. Um, we did spend some time talking about, um, you know, how he does things, some of his science experiments, which were just completely fascinating. And towards the end, we did get a little serious talking about some of his uh, personal issues, which uh, I thought was very engaging. And I really appreciate Donnie being honest and really diving into them. I think it's a important topic to talk about when it's when we have an opportunity to do so. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you do, please share it out on social media. Uh, I'm at Stromy on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also find me on Food About Town on Facebook. Thanks for listening. at the new winter in the northeast it's drizzling and just under 40 degrees and it's completely miserable out so i brought one of the brightest stars in rochester (laughs) and uh one of the people that brightens my day every time i see him why don't you introduce yourself sir my name is donnie clutterbuck hi donnie how's it going doing very well so donnie is the uh head barman at cure i am so is that, what's your official title there? Are you bar manager? I don't know. I don't know if there's really a word for it. I, I'm a shift-working bartender who also controls the program. It, it being, there are only two bartenders there and a very part-time bar back, so I am 70% of the bar staff, Yeah, and that's I'm, my title. I'm, I'm still, I mean, I, I was going when you were 100% of the bar staff. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And, <laughs> that was um, fun. <laughs> 
Now it's, it's down to 70% now, and it's much more sustainable, and it's given me a lot of time for outside projects or interests, just things I would... Not that I don't like bartending, but no one should do one thing 100% of the time. Not that you have any other interests or activities to do. (laughs) I don't like anything else (laughs) at all. Um, So, I mean, so when you were doing 100% of the activity... How many hours a week were you putting in? I forgot I did that, but I well, I, that's what that's when I started to get to know <laughs> you better. Right. Was it was when you were when you went over to Cure after you were at Good Luck? Yeah, um, I knew I met you a couple times at the Revelry, mm-hmm. um, just a, just a couple times, not enough where we actually knew each other at all, but enough that I was here once, yeah. sitting in this actual exact. Yeah, you seat. were here yeah. right when you were when you were at Good Luck, and we barely knew each other at that point. Yeah, and. Progressing from there, I mean, you were you were at Good Luck for a while, mm-hmm. and you moved over to Cure, and you were a hundred percent of the bar staff for what at least a year, right? It was close to a year. It, it was yeah, it was somewhere around a year. Uh, when I left Good Luck, I, re- I I saw that Cure was a bar that needed a singular bartender because it didn't have that at all. It had like a every server was a bartender whenever they felt like being a bartender, or not mm-hmm. whenever the schedule demanded it. So pretty much everyone on staff did everything whenever it was necessary for them to do that. And the bar program didn't suffer because of that. It just could use, you know, like when you rent a car, it's not that the inside of the car is worse because everyone else has been driving it. It's just not your car. Yeah. So I wanted to make it someone's car instead of everyone's car. And that's pretty much happened. I And I coming from Booker and Dax and the revelry, and dive bars for so long, I just I had whittled myself down to not really wanting to work. And there's nothing against Good Luck. That Good Luck is one of my favorite bars to work at or to be on the other side of. But being behind that bar, you don't really have a sense of you. There is a sense of team, and I really wanted to exercise the sense of me because I haven't ever been given the opportunity to do that. And I saw a really clear shot at it, and uh, I wanted to see if I could make it happen. Well, I think I mean, and. Let's uh, you know start the start the love fest for a second. Um, I mean, I think really, truly, that is what has happened. It's really, I, I feel the vision when I'm there. It still has some of the some of the classic drinks that were on the menu. Of course, did, yeah, did you, you we do, can't knock those off. No yeah. way. Things like the Goat Hill, which is a Manhattan riff, that is, I can think of no better riff on a Manhattan that I've ever made to replace that with. So until we find something like once that stops selling and I come up with a better idea then we'll knock it off. But we don't have any mandatory drink switch moments. So the Like a Shark has been on there since almost day one, I think. I mean, it's just There's no reason a, to take it off. It's, it's just a, such a solid drink from top It's a staple of the bar. So it'd be like if we took the Bon Me off the food menu, where that's like that's something people come in for. As soon as people stop ordering it, we'll make a change. But if we're not bored of it and they aren't bored of it, there's no reason to change it yet. So we, just do, we do a very slow rotation on cocktails. The point of the menu of the eight drinks that are on it is so that you know how you'd like you go to a bar and you're like bartender whip me something up based on these preferences and pretty much anytime <laughs> anyone says anything one of those drinks fits it absolutely so those are just regularly exercised drinks that we made up on the spot that happened to fill the void that a particular type of guest would like to drink well and it's it's a starting point for a conversation too right. you know if it's your first time i think this is just generally good etiquette and you can correct me if i'm wrong first time you're at a bar and you're just ordering something you either order a classic or you order something on the menu yeah i mean let them let them show you what they can do 
let it be something that's basic. Because the menu is what they can do. Yeah. I mean, it's much of what they, it's not everything they can well, do. But that's, that's what is, they're prepping most for. Right. That's what they're actively that's, ready they've for. They've chosen that. When someone says, what's your favorite, what are your favorite drinks or what's good? The, the menu is, it's in your hand. Yeah. You know, that, that is what is good. I mean, there are, of course, other things once you get down the line of like, if you've had all those drinks or you know that that's not your style of drink, we have no problem making anything outside of that. But there is, I, I don't really know what the general etiquette is. It varies bartender to bartender and like by scenario. Yeah. There are some bartenders who were like, you're just, just look at the menu. I don't, I don't want to talk about this because I already put so much time into the menu that if we bypass that, why did I do it at all? Yeah. But I don't. I just want whoever comes in to be happy. So if they want to, if they're the type of people who just don't like menus, I'm one of them. I don't like reading cocktail menus, and I yeah, I, I you know what I it, do it, but yeah, <laughs> not I my favorite. I part. tend to be that yeah. as well, but I also try to develop relationships with the places I tend to hang out. Totally, which I think is where the balance point comes in. Is if I come in at this point and I say something, you have an awareness of what I like. Yes. Or you're saying, oh, he's going to be okay, and I'm going to do whatever I want. Yep. And that's either something, so one of your outside interests, you're, you're a man of competition. Yeah, well, I, I would, <laughs> <laughs> I hate competition as a, like the feeling of it, the, the word competition. I don't like that people inherently, if you win, someone else loses. And I know that's weird. I just, I don't, it makes me uncomfortable and I don't like it. I don't, I don't want to beat myself. You know, I, fi- I find that interesting because, I, I take opportunities when I see them to be competitive because I have so I don't have that much of that in my day to day life. So like for example, I'm I'm a curler and I I'm competitive when I'm out there. I feel that competition, right? And I dr- I drive myself really hard while I'm out there, and I'm hard on myself. So I think that's I, I think that's an interesting thing. Very hard on myself. I I uh, I grew up as a competitive swimmer, baseball player, and pianist. So I've experienced enough loss and enough winning to know exactly what both feel like and what I've learned from both. But at the end of the day, none of it matters except what you learn about yourself, which is why I have a problem with competition and it being about winning. Mm. Winning is a really good sign that you did something right. But if you're, if you're winning against, I don't know, if I had a cocktail competition against a chair and a couch and I won, who cares? Who cares? I didn't learn anything about myself. It's really it's about who you're in the room with what they know and high stakes moments yeah, where you would not, it's about putting yourself under more pressure than you would otherwise be under because that's when you crack and you boil everything down to like what, who you are and what you're capable of because you're nervous about it. Well, and I think also what you do when you don't, <laughs> Excuse me. what you do when it, you fall on your face. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the more you fall on your face, the more used to it you get and the less nervous you are about it. So you're more willing to try new things. So, I wouldn't say I'm a man of competition. I've been accepted to very few competitions, and I've won almost none of them. So <laughs> I'm no, like, Mark Spitz. That's a dated reference. I'm no uh, <laughs> Andrew Phelps? Andrew Phelps? My, my, Michael Phelps. Phelps. Michael Phelps. Wow. <laughs> I got to get a TV, man. <laughs> Mark Spitz, yeah. Well, it's but 80s, I, I guess the reason I say, said that the competition thing is because, you know, I'll come in and I'll see you're working on something. You're always working on something. You're not... Yeah. You don't stand on your laurels. You're you're working on something, whether it's a competition or for some event or for something else. Yeah, seems like you're always trying something different or trying to figure out what you're doing next. I think that it comes a lot from having worked in a dive bar for so long, like dive bars and clubs and clubs in Buffalo, that where I wasn't necessarily learning anything about what I was doing. I was learning stuff about people and about how they interact and react and <clears throat> just are as human beings. 
and that was one of the most valuable experiences ever. However, at the end of those 10 years, I was like, I am not progressing in any major way. You did 10 years in dive bars Something and like clubs? that. 06 to 20, 04 to 2013. Wow. Yeah. So I, I didn't know it was that long. I mean, that's, that's a ton of time. That's a lot of time slinging. I mean, you're essentially yeah. just slinging. And right? one of the bars was seven years of wow. me managing it. But managing was a loose word, really, just being the person who was accountable for stuff, not yeah. any real duties or, you know, no, nothing I had to have experience in. Right. But that was a big part of the problem. I wasn't really gaining the ability to do anything imp- that I, I find impressive. Good? Or even enjoyable. Yeah, enjoyable is, <laughs> I don't know, that, that's, again, depends on what you think is enjoyable. But after a while, I felt like I was just sort of treading water and hadn't learned anything. And it had been 10 years. So by the time I left that bar and did a, I went to Tokyo for two weeks the next day, I was like, I have to get out of whatever situation I'm in. I can't handle how just stagnant I'm getting. Oh, I'm going to stop there. Yeah, yeah. I've, I'm, I'm bad at travel. I've never been outside of, you know, lower Canada in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. And Japan is one of the places that is so high on my list. It seems like such a fascinating place. And two weeks seems like just scratching the surface. It was just scratch, scratching the surface. But I think I got a really good feel for what it's all about. Even within the first five days, just waking up there five days in a row is different than anything I've ever done outside of that. <laughs> and, uh, you know... Japan didn't care. It's not like I, I didn't affect anything. <laughs> I didn't do a, a big thing. It was just a, a personal journey, I guess. That's that's a I I love that. That's that's a great way of talking about travel. Yeah, I didn't go there and make waves or anything. No, but I just but, but, I went there to soak it in. I love that. Yeah. I mean, when when you think about travel, the place doesn't care that you're there. No. In that, I think that's not unless you're someone who's super important and like the you know people cross the street to see you. Yeah. But I was just trying to blend in, which is nearly impossible. As a six foot tall white guy <laughs> covered in tattoos, it really I stuck out a yeah. lot, and uh, it was it was really it was a growing experience to see that there is a an entire culture of people who still live based on like the honor and respect principle, yet are not totally deterrent of outside <laughs> influence. I mean, a lot of their culture comes from like forties, fifties, sixties U.S. stuff, and even current, obviously. They're racist in other ways other than we are. Sure. Like, they're racist against other Asians, which is interesting. They're secluded. They're on an island of their own. But yeah. that wasn't the part that really struck me. It was more like just the way people operate. There are no garbage cans on the street. You bring garbage home with you instead. Yeah. You don't smoke in public. You smoke, well, sorry, you don't smoke on the street. You smoke in bars and restaurants. And everything is just backwards. I, I don't know. Every, every single thing that is our default setting is just almost the opposite over there, which. Was it just struck me as really cool, and I was like, okay, the world is different than I thought it was. Let's go find out how much more. Yeah. So I became a fine diving server for about six months and found out I was terrible at that. <laughs> at which point, John offered me a job at the Revelry, and that's where I developed the obsession for diving further back into what I had thought I lost passion for. And that's John Carroll, by the way, yeah. who was kind John of Carroll. instrumental in the craft cocktail scene in Buffalo, and Very. then also sort of. I, I think in a lot of ways that you know that original Revelry crew really pushed that forward here. Although Good Luck was already open and Cheshire was already open, yeah, doing you know doing a lot of the classics the right way. The um, Revelry had a big shiny spotlight on it. Yeah, and so I, I, it it's was, not that they did anything vastly different no. than Cheshire and Good Luck, except for not jiggering at first, and which is measuring booze in a receptacle before you put it into wherever you're putting it. 
but it wasn't anything majorly groundbreaking. It was just so much louder and bigger than any other operation had been. It really like, was boisterous, you know, and it it brought like the the employees only is the only other reference I can make to a bar that I know that is very similar to the Revelry. But there's something about like the I think there's this is a quote from Hey Bartender, not a direct one. There are three different types of bartenders. There's like the sage, the cowboy, and the something else. I forgot what they are. But basically, one wants to party, one wants to learn, and one wants to read you. So if you put all those three together, you had the revelry because it was everyone who had already been bartending for, I don't know, upwards of eight years in some cases, slapping on their cocktail goggles, but not taking off their party goggles. Yeah. So everything just was – it was just a new kind of bar that made cocktails more accessible and fun for a minute. And I, now I think they are more... I, I, I didn't know Rochester before then, so I can't really say that. I can't make a judgment call about what that started that wasn't there before. I, I, think, it, I think it gave it a specific feel that we didn't have before. Gotcha. I mean, Good Luck Good Luck's an active... It's an active restaurant. It's an active drinking scene. Yeah. But it's it's just a busy place. It doesn't have a doesn't have a particular vibe to it when you're just there getting drinks. Yeah, it just feels warm and comfortable. Yeah. And the revelry feels like a like you're on a spaceship... Going to a party planet. Yeah, you're you're on you're yeah. in the scene. I mean, there's right. there there's there's always scenes in a place, but I think it made such a specific note as the scene. Yeah. For that, I'm not to say it's not still, but for that year, that year, year and a half, two years almost, where it really was the place. Yeah. And it was the it was the main the only place where people were going. It's in the while. name, the revelry. Yeah, and also the concentration of talent at that time there was. Really something kind of special. I think they picked a really good crew, especially since the four primary bartenders off the bat or within the first year were all people who had known each other and interacted and got along previously. I mean, John and Zach, for lack of a better word, are my brothers. Yeah. Even though we don't have the same mom. As soon as John moved to uh, Buffalo from Nyack, New York, which was like, it had to be like the late 2000s, maybe like 2008, 9, uh, I hired him as a door guy and then as a bar back, and then as a bartender, and then he went to go open the first cocktail bar in Western New York, which is like, that's not me saying I have some sort of power over him. He definitely took steps that I would never think to and actually pushed back against at first. But we have gone through so many 7 a.m. nights together that I don't think there's a better way to get to know someone who they really are Yeah, in their in their heart, yeah. you know? And there are a lot of people in the cocktail scene in Buffalo and Rochester that I've like grown up with in that way, right? Which is pretty cool. It's cool to see everybody just like further whittling down who they are and going and doing it. You yeah. can call it growing, but I, I I had a conversation about this earlier today. It's I, when you grow, you like create branches on your tree, and I yeah yeah we're doing that to some degree. Like all of us are when we wake up in the morning, we're like making new leaves and twigs and stuff. But the way I've always felt is that it's more like when you drop a quarter and or like that ball in that game where it's got the pegs in it and the glass window in front of it and you watch the ball fall, fall down a specific path and you're hoping it ends up in a certain place but you really have no control over it i feel like my path just gets more and more specific as time goes on so i feel like i'm sort of like dropping myself into an increasingly thin and narrow and deep hole not in a weird way not in a bad way in a, in a way that's like not many other people are going to end up exactly where I did because they're not me. Yeah. And I'm not going to end up where they did because it's like if we're all trees, we're all separate, but if we're all in our own little holes. We're all on the ground together. We're just like making up 
a foundation. I don't know. I, I it's all in my brain. I'm having a lot of trouble um, vocalizing what I see of it in my no, head. No, I I, I like that. I like that analogy a lot. It's I mean, more getting more specific and gaining new skills instead of just getting bigger and older and you know creating more of yourself. I, I feel like it, it's you're everything when you're a kid because you don't yet know what you like or don't like. But as you grow older, you find out very very quickly a list of things you don't like anymore and a new list of things you do, of course. But I, if someone says, what do you want to be when you grow up to me now? I can tell them what I don't want to be way more than I can about what I do want to be. Yeah. And I think that's just going to keep happening. Where like you, Life is a series of forks in the road and you don't always choose one of them, but you definitely choose not to go down one. That's, or the other. That's, that's I think, what I'm trying to get at here, yeah. long-windedly. No, I, I like that. But I mean, I, I also like the fact when you're talking about drilling deeper and deeper and deeper is when you find something that really grabs you, find something you can really engage with, find something you can really have a passion about. Yeah. And you, you don't, you don't want to stop. You want to continue. You want to keep on diving because you find it so fascinating. Competing has, against yourself, right? Well, it's competing yeah. against yourself and, and against time. Finding the facets in it. That's where I was going with this about the whole wasting time in a, at, at not wasting time, but feeling like I was treading water for 10 years yeah, and yeah. then finding a, thing that turned me back onto it or back on like reignited my passion for the industry that I had lost it for made me realize that I was like, I have a lot of catching up to do. So now every time I have an idea, I'm like, don't just have an idea, man. Ideas don't do anything. Just do it. Well, so let's, let's, let's go into that for a second. So we're at the revelry for what, a year and a half. It was there for about a year. Yeah. Yeah. A year and a half around there. somewhere. yeah, that, that, that first crew, I'm just going to, List off the people just so if if you're a Rochester person and you follow the the drink scene here, I mean they're all people you know. Mm-hmm. So John Carroll was the bar manager. Yep. Zach Makita, who is not right now kind of the manager of the revelry, but is the new bitter honey, mm-hmm. which is another Josh Miles project. He was Riker at the you know, number one. He was, Absolutely. He was the second in command. So you were there. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah Ikus was there, who was, who was my entry into drinking, really. Yep. Um, she was, she taught me the basics. She's moving back. Is she really? Yeah. No, I, I was, you know, Moved I was, to Florida, Florida very briefly and she's coming back in early February, I believe. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, I was actually meaning to get in touch with her and talk to her about Florida stuff. So yep. that'll be fun. You know, she won't have much to say. I don't think, I think there's a reason <laughs> she's moving back. She doesn't. I think that she has similar interests to the state of Florida. <laughs> That's fair at this point. Yeah, I don't know if she's wrong. I've never been there before, but I have never heard of it being a very progressive and you know, yeah, awesome. It's place. Florida. Yeah, I heard Miami's cool, but yeah, I don't know much about the rest of it. Yeah, Swamps and gators, right? Yeah, tons of them. <laughs> yeah, tons of them and lots of old people. Yep, lots of old people yep. to eat. Um, so and then the the barbacks were were Pat. Pat Stetzel, yeah, who's, who's pretty much the bar manager of the revelry now. And I think wasn't was Mac Hartman the other one? Yeah, who's, yeah. Mac is Mac is still there, right? He's still there, yeah. I don't go in on the busy nights because I'm working the busy nights, so I don't get to see who's really holding it down there or doing the the lion's share of the work. Yeah, but everybody who works there still has the same energy and care. They're just in the early phases of it. Yeah. Which it's not a bad thing by any means. They're just they're newer bartenders. Well, it's a different path. Like yeah. you're talking about, it's a different path to get Completely. to where they're going. In fact, half of them are in the same band, and they know more about instruments and and mixing and mastering than I ever will. <laughs> so <laughs> different path, you know. Yeah. Do both. That's cool. So I guess the reason I was gonna 
go on from the reverie to the next thing is it's a place that I find fascinating. I don't know nearly enough about was you went to New York and you worked at Booker and Dax, which I think I mentioned it the last time you were here just because I did some research, but like I, I know who the guy that runs it now. I mean, I've, I've listened to his podcast. Oh, cooking issues. Yeah. That's the best. Me too. <laughs> he, I mean, it's, it's really weird and it's, He's a he's an eccentric gentleman. He's a weird dude. Yeah, Dave Very. Arnold. Dave Arnold, who's who was the leader. I don't know what what do you call. It? He's the owner of Booker and Dax. He was half owner. Yeah, or yeah. Uh, somewhere around there. He was he was the he was in control of the bar, as much as anyone could be at the front. I think yeah. there were other investors, and David Chang clearly was one of them. Sure. And uh, Dave Arnold was the guy who it was Booker and Dax because of Dave Arnold. And so I mean, I don't know how you describe who he is, but he's like a. He's, I guess, the molecular gastronomy and high-end technical cooking techniques and... Yeah, he is just all about the why behind cooking. If you can find the why behind cooking or drinks making, you can decide <laughs> to change the rules, not for the sake of changing the rules, but for the uh, a better product. So his point is not to be flashy about anything or to do stuff just to do it, unless, of course, you want to just see what happens when you do something. That's always a good way to find out what's going to happen, right? Just just do whatever it is that popped into your head. But nothing would ever go on the menu because it was like frozen in a ball of ice so that you could look at it when it came out. It was all like half the drinks that we served didn't even have garnishes because it wasn't really about that. It didn't matter. If the garnish didn't add to the drink, the garnish wasn't there. So the way I can sum him up in the, in the way that I most learned about him was that he was a man who was not about the BS he was really just about trying to do cool stuff with technology if technology helped you do cool stuff. Well, isn't that a great way to think about things? Though? Yeah. Is use the tools in front of you to make whatever you want as best as it can be. And if there's a problem, find a tool to fix it. Yeah. It's the big thing. And that's where the centrifuge and the red hot poker and the... Uh, searzol, like I believe, too, right? Acid powders and stuff. The searzol is used in some places. We didn't use it at, uh, at Booker and Dax at all, yeah. but it came out of there. That's Dave Arnold's product. The Spinzol will be coming out soon if anybody buys it. But Yeah, which I, I, I was fascinated. Hoping. I was fascinated when it came out. It's an incredible tool. It, it's basically, so it's a countertop centrifuge the size of a food processor. Yep. And they were putting out an initial price. It's an obscenely low price for what it is. It was like seven hundred dollars. Six ninety nine. Now it's up to seven ninety nine post New Year, um, unless you pledged earlier. Then you're right. still at the six ninety nine level. And I think the MSRP, not the MSRP, but the the retail price will be nine ninety nine, which still is a fraction, like an eighth, of what you can get a used, uh, otherwise countertop centrifuge for that weighs three hundred pounds, <laughs> and God forbid it breaks down, you are. Uh, who's going to fix it? Yeah. Where are you going to get another one? It, there, it's like there's, there's no in house centrifuge. There's no good way to reliably do this. So <laughs> the spins all is it. And if we are at a point in time where this is something that's accessible or enough, enough people care about it, then it will get funded. I think it should. I hope it does. I wish that I could be an investor for it because I think in 10 years, if we don't have this, we're going to really regret it because we're all yeah. still going to want it. Just more people are going to want it. Yeah. Well, I think the, I think what we see when stuff like this happens is. You look at the timing of it. If we look back in 10 years, yeah, we can look at that product and say, what was the timing on it? Was he two years before his time? Yeah. Was he at the right time? I don't think he's... I mean, he's he's certainly not late to the game. No. So he's either at the right time or years ahead of his time. Right. 
And it's it's hard to say where it is because I think something like that will become popular, but we're also I think we're nichifying cooking and this stuff so much. Well, the sous vide cooker, if you look back, was not very you couldn't purchase one on no. a on a normal you know, budget for either a restaurant or a home use at all. I have one in my kitchen. I paid $100 for it. Now, yeah, you can do that. It was like $2,500. Well, not, I, I'm not quoting any actual prices. I don't no, know. They but were. It, was, it was so much more expensive before, and somebody made them accessible. A yeah. few people did. And Dave Arnold's trying to do that with centrifuges. And I think if we can, people will start caring much more if they see that it's available and people are using it more widely. But I don't know. It's, We'll see if it was at its time. No one else is going to do a better job of this, so he's just going to have to go back in five years and redo the campaign <laughs> again. When it, because no one... I've never even contemplated the type of setup that he has made. It is insanely cool. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the fact that it got turned into... Now, I don't know a ton about it. That's It's one of those things... I, I did a brief read about it when it got brought up in the podcast. I read a little bit about it. I mean, I... I conceptually understand a centrifuge you're separating you know liquids and mm-hmm. solids and doing stuff like that i just don't fully understand like what's a, what's a functional use i mean you've have you used oh. it or were you you were involved in using functional it? use like what would you put in it and why would you put it in there yeah let's go through a couple things just because yeah. i find it fascinating uh clarified lime juice or grapefruit or orange or lemon juice lime juice is the the main one that we were running through all the time if you treat it with the pectin X to break down the pectin and then kytosan and kiesel findings. I, I think I'm pronouncing those the right way. You, I say fi- findings, right? Fi- I didn't findings? Say, yeah, I didn't mean to say findings if that happened. That yeah. was stuck in my head after I said that. I wish I could rewind. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to sound like a dimwit. Yeah. Uh, if you treat it in 15-minute intervals with those in a certain order, it begins to clarify itself a little bit, but it won't fully clarify <laughs> until the juice has gone bad. Because gravity won't do it quickly enough. Okay. And I don't even know if it would fully clarify all the way anyway. But if you throw it in a centrifuge for 15 minutes, it fully clarifies everything. And then you have this like strange colored of green, clear liquid. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, you're basically, you're just you're removing the solids through yeah. the use of chemicals and spinning and, Which and is emphasizing for gravity. Two reasons. Yeah. So it runs at about. 4,000 Gs, I think, or something like that. So wow. 4,000 times the force of gravity. It would take way too long at the force of gravity to do anything uh, proper with that. But clarifying lime juice in particular is important for two reasons, one of which is that if you want to stir a drink that has any acid presence to it, you can't have particulate matter in it because it'll separate back out if you don't shake it, right? Mm. So you can make an old-fashioned but with lime juice in it or you know any... It just opens up a new category of drinks, the stirred daiquiri to some degree. It's like it's a new category. And uh, if you want to carbonate something properly you and you plan to add more acid into it after it's carbonated, which is what we did. If you want to store a drink that will not go bad for a while and then add acid after you have carbonated and served it, you can't have any particular matter in it because it creates nucleation sites for the carbonation to basically jump out of the glass. Makes like when sense. You, when you see bubbles in a glass, that means there are impurities or solids in it. And any time there are those, the carbon dioxide leaves way more quickly. So you lose your carbonation if you put solids in, which lime juice typically has. Hmm. I mean, it's that's that's a fascinating idea. And I know that you can also use it in many ways in the kitchen as well. So I think you they do stuff like you know, removing liquid out of peas and they turn it yeah. into like pea butter, I think is what they call it. Totally. I don't know most of what goes on in a kitchen in terms of that. But you can make anything that you can make like herb oils. You can just make much more quickly and more clearly 
mm. with or with more densely packed with herbs, so you can get a stronger oil out of it if you were running it at. I think this centrifuge, the Spinzol, runs at like fifteen hundred or two thousand Gs, but it has such a, a much higher surface area and less of a. This is going to sound weird. The the items being clarified have have less space to travel through the liquid from which they're being clarified. Mm. So you don't have a three inch or four inch deep bucket of this stuff to which everything at the top has to go to the bottom. You have like an inch along the entire rim of the centrifuge because it, oscill- it oscillates between slightly higher and lower speeds so that the liquid inside of the spinzol is constantly moving around the rim of the... That's bu- not a bucket of the rotor, I guess. So better surface area and less volume to travel out makes it clarify in less time, even at mm. a lower G. Yeah, it's just science stuff. That's, it's that's the, I, f- I find that really interesting, and it's the kind of thing where... If I've summed that up the right way. I, I've heard Dave Arnold say it a bunch of times, and I've watched the videos, so I'm sure. assuming that I <clears> kind of <throat> have it together, but that's the gist of it. That's something I, I definitely want to watch more about and learn more about how it's used, because it's such, it's such a unique tool. By the way, we're taking a little break to refill our tequila glasses. I brought some, some tequila mm. in from my nice cold car... That is, and uh, it, did, it did warm up though. Yeah, it was syrupy when we poured it out of the bottle, and we're moving on to number two right now with a slight cork malfunction. Yeah, there you are. Thank cool. you, sir. Yep. <clears throat> so, you were there, and you spent what six months there? Uh, yeah. I I've, it, I want to say it was closer to like eight or a year, but I think it was only six months. It felt like. I was at the University of Buffalo for five and a half years, and it felt like a year when I came out from five a and philosophy. A half years? Yeah, I, t- I took a couple semesters off, and I switched from mechanical engineering to philosophy. So, <laughs> I, I love that. Yeah, Dude, I mean, that, I was a mechanical it sucked, engineer. Man, the, the engineering was a bummer. I did. I thought I was going to like it way more than I did, and I'm glad that I didn't pursue it. But I uh, anyway, the, the five and a half years there, I learned far less usable knowledge. I learned how to think at UB much more than I had known before, but I learned. About everything I know about my palate at Booker and Dax, yeah, through training with all the Momofuku people. So I mean, they're the training has to be. They really care about palate development. Just bottle reports, uh, group sessions of tasting through new products, and uh, yeah, you have to. There was bottle reports every month, so each one of us every month had to pick a bottle from a decided upon category. And, uh, you know, sometimes it'd be brandy, sometimes it was tequila, sometimes mezcal, whatever, just so we could blow through our stock, learn more about it, see how to use it, and find out what was going on in that bottle as opposed to everything else. Hmm. So then we'd have a final tasting where we ran through everything that the, uh, the bottle reports were on, and uh, each one of us would, like, present our notes on it while everyone was tasting it. Just That's... doing that was insane. Hearing what other people have to say about it is really, like... It makes you think about more dimensions of booze and flavors than you would have otherwise before. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that's a, it reminds me of like the first time I went to do coffee cupping and you sit there and everybody's putting. I'm doing that in an hour, by the way. Are you really? In Fuego, yeah. That's awesome. That's why I'm going to leave. I love (laughs) it. It's so difficult. I love doing this with Tony every time. For me specifically, it's hard because there are. uh, Plenty of boozes where if, if you pick up a rye or a bourbon or a, a brandy or whatever, like you smell the bourbon and you're like, that that smells like bourbon. And then your tasting notes are the and part. Yes. Like bourbon and. or like there's, So the coffee and part, I'm still smelling the coffee every time. I don't have like the, <laughs> the 
like the first 50% of what you're smelling is the same throughout every coffee. And then the second 50% is what you take notes on. I don't know the first well enough. So it's a real mental exercise to I'm very much the same. I'm not good at it. I don't think I am either, but I'm actually relatively bad. The the bad part about a lot of what I do is my wife is better than me at almost everything I do. (laughs) She's a more natural taster. She's a more natural writer. You just happen to like it. <laughs> I, just, I just happen to be doing it. Yeah. But like when I, we go to taste coffee, she's like, "Oh wow, that's 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 raspberry." I'm like, "Now that you say I so, yeah, it. there's raspberry <laughs> right there." Now, now that you say it, I can taste it. Yeah. But it's like when I see the notes, I can focus in on them in my head. But it's that blind pulling the notes out of a coffee. Right. I, I find it really challenging and always fascinating. I think the the best way to exercise something like that that I've noticed anyway is if you find yourself at a farmer's market or a the produce section or during a meal or whatever, take in and log every flavor and smell that you can in your general life so that when you're tasting or smelling things out of a glass, you have a Rolodex of things. It's sort of like you're just flipping through them mentally as you smell or taste something. So you're, you have a reference library of, let's say, I don't know, 10,000 smells or something. You're going through the most prominent ones in your head going like, does this smell like, like you have to ask yourself the question, does this smell like cucumber? And it's a really quick in and out because you're not actually vocalizing it in your brain. But as you fly through something like that, you can just sort of reference each thing individually, 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 categories, and then further. Have you ever seen the flavor wheel for coffee? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. There are categories and then categories within those and categories within those. So I think if you're like, this smells sweet, and you're like, what kind of sweet? Is it honey sweet or demerara sweet or whatever? And then you can whittle it down to a certain sugar. Whereas when someone says that right off the bat, you're like, where did you come up with that? Right. Tastes like agave. What What are you talking about? It's a process. Yeah, right. It's always a process. Um, And there's one taste note that I just hit recently that was so striking. And it's right on the bag. Um, But it's uh, from Happy Earth Tea. I don't know if you've tasted nope. their stuff. One, you need to do it. I think you'd really enjoy it. Um, it's a gentleman named uh, Niraj. He runs Happy Earth Tea in the South Wedge Leaf Tea Bar. All right. And it's our only tea-focused place in Rochester. He does direct sourcing. He travels to source to you know places in Nepal and India. And Where is this? It's in the South Wedge uh, right next to Thread. Oh, okay, yeah. Place is dynamite. Cool. There's a tea he's serving right now. It's called Luan Guapian. It's a. I'm probably butchering that. No, so be it. <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly how the natives of whatever I'm country sure it is. that comes from say that. It's Chinese. Yeah, there you um, go. But it's called melon seed tea. Melon seed. And when you when you brew it, it's this such this distinct aroma of the inside of a melon huh. where the seeds are, and it's so distinct. Wow. And it's one of the more odd tasting notes I've ever seen on something. But, <laughs> but if damned, it's... damned if it's not exactly <laughs> yeah. melon seed when you focus in on it. Wow. And it's one of those you'd never think that's, I really want melon seed right now in my cup hot. Right. But when it's there. And yeah, you, like. <laughs> and you think about it, damn if it's not a perfect like tasting When you get note. musty closet out of a bourbon, you're like, it, you, you say that aloud and everyone's like, what? <clears throat> and you're like, that's not what I, I wouldn't have like. I would never go to a bar and order a glass of anything that tasted like a musty closet. Yeah. Verbally, but when you get it, it's cool. Right. The melon seed thing, I suppose that's that's sort of nice either way. But, yeah. You know, <laughs> don't name if anybody out there who wants to make a bourbon. Don't call it musty closet. 
the old musty closet bourbon. Call it blueberries, and then just list on the back that says, may taste like musty closet. <laughs> Small text. Don't tell anybody outright. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. you want to seem smart still, so you want people to know that you knew it tasted like musty closet, but it can't be the front runner on the bottle. Not your first tasting no. note? No. Yeah. That's a little Business plans. <laughs> <laughs> um. So so we got we got through. I I, w- I wanted to talk about Book and Dex because I just found it it's fine interesting. It's such an interesting character. It is. It was anyway. It's it's closed now. It'll be it's yeah. going to be reopening somewhere in the future sometime. Not as Booker and Dax, but as some other place. Dave Arnold wanted to call it Eagle Power. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody <laughs> said that's stupid though. So he's probably not going to call it that. But <laughs> yeah, but doing something <laughs> stupid shouldn't necessarily stop you. No, though. I'm sure it'd be super famous still. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. You're back in Rochester. You've been a mm-hmm. cure for a while. Mm-hmm. And we were sort of playing around at the beginning that you are a person who doesn't stop. No. Um, so you are. I try to. I, I make it a point to. <laughs> Sometimes. Kind of. Yeah. So you are the uh, head of the USBG chapter here in Rochester. Yeah. Which, one, has sort of turned into a thing. Yeah. Yeah, it, we had a really good reception, and we've had a, a leveling out of membership that sort of landed us sort of around where Boston is in membership. But we had more at that. some point, but a lot of people didn't re-up their memberships because they sort of joined just to support it because they liked the idea of it in the beginning. And then a lot of them just got busy and decided to not uh, re-up. However, that does not mean that they don't show up to everything still. <laughs> it just ah. means they've stopped paying into it, which is uh, mm. no, it's an issue that we have to confront somehow some way and we're going to try to do it the um, positive reinforcement way rather than the negative so you get benefits for being a member and joining and like re-upping rather than you get punished for not we kind of have to do both really but there's got to at least be a balance there but if i have to pay to run it you have to pay to be in it absolutely that's my thing well especially i mean you're also at the i mean still that membership for a city the size of Rochester to be equal to that of Boston is yeah. striking. We are like the sixth biggest in the Northeast, <laughs> I think, and that means we are on par with or trumping like the state of Vermont and the state of Rhode Island, state yeah. of Connecticut. And we're around, we were around like Pittsburghy, <clears throat> Philly, Boston. I think they all surpassed us this year, but they're probably been around for a few more years, and I think they're all just beginning to hit their stride more so. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll see what happens in the upcoming year. Our elections happen in August. So hopefully there's going to be another resurgence or insurgence of members and um, life as the council changes over a little bit. Not because our current council doesn't care. They care a lot, and they're wonderful. They are the reason, in fact, that we are what we are. Because Is that uh, the national the national council? No, no, local council. Yeah, oh, okay. Just, just us. We have elections every every 2nd August. So this coming August will be the next set of elections for president, VP, secretary, and treasurer. Awesome. And uh, I can't wait to see who even wants to do it and what they have to add because an influx of... Like, me, Dan, Brennan, and Nick are like, we're not out of ideas by any means, but we've done a lot of the stuff that we had ideas about. So I'm hoping that at least one new person comes in, not because I want any of these people to drop out, but, I mean, one of them is probably going to move soon, so she kind of has to drop out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that being said, if we're losing a woman, I want a woman on board. And I want to see who um, – I don't want it to be a boys club. So I want to see who – which which woman in our chapter would want to step up and you know fill the shoes. Yeah. If not two, if we lose another, you know, if we lose the secretary or the, the treasurer somehow, some way. I, I just want to see what other people have to say about it when they're in a seat of 
relative power yeah. rather than just being consumers. What happens when you have to make the product that's to be consumed? You know? Right. It's pretty cool. No, I, I find that I find that interesting. And it's, you know, I, I grew up with, you know, my, I grew up with my dad always being on like boards of things. Yeah. They're, all, they're never huge. Right. They're always small. Things he cared about. There were things he cared about, but they were small, but there's always something going on in a group like that. There has to be. There's no point in there even being a group <clears throat> if there's not something happening. Yeah, right? and it's always there's always something. There's always somebody jockeying. There's always somebody something. I find it the 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 dynamics of relatively small groups like that as they grow and change. I I, I find those kind of interesting. They can move in a lot of weird directions. Yeah, they can be very positive. They can be very negative, and it can be all positive and negative at the same time. It depends on who you ask. You know. Yeah. Like a so I mean you not everybody likes olives. Or strawberries. Everybody's mm. got a different mouth. Olives and strawberries together. <laughs> Very few people like that. Yikes. <laughs> so you've been doing, I mean, USBG's been going for a little... Almost two years. Almost two years, wow. Yeah, year and a half at so least. So what's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the most exciting stuff that you, that you have in the last like, year and a half? What's, what pops for you? Uh, things like launching the website of, of saleable goods has been really cool, despite the fact that it does not work on phones. Big Cartel has been difficult to work with in that regard. I haven't really come at them with anything, but it's just, you know, it's one of those things where you have to learn the website jargon a little bit. Yeah. But, uh, Launching a, a new brand that was not just the USBG brands. If you if you release just USBG branded clothing with our roundel, like the the chapter logo on it, the market's pretty small for who's going to buy that, and it's going to be very, mostly people who have already joined, unless they're just buying it to support it. Like when you donate <clears> to <throat> your local college and you, they give you a sweater, like you didn't you don't really want the sweater, you just did it because you like the college. I don't think that's a really good way to source income from outside sources. So we created Forward Drinking as a as a brand that would appeal to people who just like booze and don't maybe not even know what the USBG is or, or care for that matter. But we can get a little bit of their money and provide cohesion amongst like I don't know, it, it there's two reasons, clearly. One is we want to get money from people who would never join the chapter because we need to be funded somehow. It's a five oh one C six. We are not rich. <laughs> I'll right. say that. And we have a lot of stuff we want to do that requires donations. So we, we want to get donations from people so that we can donate to the things we want to donate to. And the second thing is to create a community even outside of our small community. So if we can get 15 people to buy this, which already 15, if we can get like 100 people to buy a forward drinking item of clothing of anything, whether it's a beanie or a T-shirt, a watch cap, baseball hat, a sweater, or whatever, whatever we're selling – they can bump into each other at a bar, not know each other, and be like, oh, you know these guys too? It's yeah. like it creates an inside joke, sort of. So I wanna, we want to be that inside joke. That's a great place That's to be, though. one of my favorite things that we've done so far. The calendar that we just launched was a huge deal, and we will do a few things differently next time, but I can't believe that it turned out the way it did. It's stunning. I mean, the pictures really yeah. capture, I think, a lot of people really well. They look great. The brands that bought into <laughs> it are really happy with it, for the most part. I spelled one of their names wrong. Don't tell anybody. Minor concerns. Yeah. <laughs> Not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Also, Dan Herzog's name is Dan Herzog. Oh, uh, the old yep. Herzog. First page. <laughs> I don't know how we missed that. But First month. Considering how, I always try to think of things this way. I never do, but I try to. Considering the amount of things that could have gone wrong there, very few did. Yeah. If there are three nitpicky details that we were like, ah, darn it, we screwed that up. Big deal. There's millions of letters, not millions of letters. There are a ton of letters on that. 
a ton of colors and a lot of binding orders and and finishes that could have gone like everything could have gone wrong. Only those three did though. Yeah, it's a very small percentage of the possibilities. Yeah, you know? and it's if especially if it's something you're proud of. I mean, that's yep. that's cool. Yeah, we're pumped about it, and we're hoping to funnel everything that we made off those calendars into funding a much larger charity party in the middle of 2017, probably right around our elections, really, and uh, then donate two to three times the amount that we made on the calendars to charity on behalf of the USBG. That's awesome. So it, just sort of it being like a... If any good business relationship is one where everybody wins, so if the brands feel like they got proper res- representation, uh, we feel as though we've made enough money to be able to donate a ton, and everyone who bought any of the stuff feels happy about what they bought, boom. It's like... Those three people being happy means, especially if we can donate to charity while we're doing it, that's uh, it's a, the best case scenario. And I think we're on our way to achieving it. That's awesome. It, yeah. It's it's hard to find the the win-win-win scenario. Right. That's the only way I ever want to operate. I don't want to take more or less than I'm worth for anything because I think that would be a bad way to, it's a bad precedent to set. Sure. You know? Well, let's talk about that for a second. We, we kind of started touching on this before the podcast, <clears throat> but Donnie is also an app He's an app creator. Oh yeah, yeah. So he's so you've got you have an app on both the app uh, the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. I do, both for Android and um, and iOS. <clears throat> and we just released the Android version about two to three weeks ago. <clears throat> and if there's anything I could go back and change about, well, I suppose I should say what it is first. It's, yeah, it's, probably it's an should app do that. Poor cost. <laughs> instead, instead of doing the postmortem right, of exactly. a live thing that's still selling, <laughs> right. let's let's probably right. highlight the positives of it. Well, the <laughs> positives are something that are happening too. I'm just doing it later than I thought I or think I should have. I thought I should have done it as when I'm doing it. I like the point but, of view. <laughs> let let let's destroy this new project that I put so much time. Yeah, in. yeah, because well, that's like you know. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. I don't have a yacht because I released it. You know, I, I have a. I have a list of things that I'm going to do differently next time I do something like this. But yeah. that that's okay. I, I also have a profound sense of achievement, having created something and seen it through to what I could just walk away from it now. But I right. I want to make it better still. So poor, poor cost. cost. Poor cost is yeah. <laughs> shut up, Donnie. <laughs> poor cost is an app where uh, the problem that it solves is that. We buy bottles in milliliters or kegs in giant ounces, and they're never listed what they are. So you buy a bottle that's a 750 milliliter bottle. You're going to pour two ounces of it, and uh, the bottle costs a certain amount of U.S. dollars, right? So there are three figures there that are not translatable amongst one another, and there's math that has to be done to find out what that pour is going to cost you. (laughs) Pour cost, get it? Yeah. What that pour is going to cost you. And then not only what it's going to cost you, because what do you do with that information? You have to find out what to charge for it and what your margin or pour cost is on that. So initially I was going to have like rollers or uh, digit input things on on a, the phone. Jesus, on the screen. I don't know, whatever, the app screen. Yeah. And uh, just had a brain fart there. I don't know, I just, I, was I asleep for 20 minutes just now? I, I feel like we, I just we, woke we, up. We did okay, we did what okay. What happened? Uh, <laughs> So anyway, there are sliders now. So the sliders have preset values, and you slide through these sliders, and you adjust them to whatever product it is that you are trying to you know, decode, and it will tell you what to charge based on a certain pour cost for whatever item that costs you this much money. So, I mean, it's really focused. It is focused on the working bar, bar person. Yes. And its target audience is bartenders, bar managers, uh, even Salesforce people. So people on the sales side have been using it a ton. Well, and when they can really go back and say, hey, 
oh, geez, your your pour cost is 20%, which I have the app in He's front of He's got the me. app open. So, you know, if, if basically, I mean, something, when if you take a step back in the restaurant world or the bar world, how much does the actual product, how much does the actual cost of the product affect the final price? Mm-hmm. People, you can say, oh, geez, I, that steak, I could go buy that steak at Wegmans for 20 bucks. Why is it costing me 60 in a restaurant? Because someone's cooking it for you, someone's serving it to you, and it's in a building that requires rent and utilities, and oh my God. Right. That is so much money. Yeah. People forget that. It's an absolute ton, so for somebody who's in the bar industry, and you say, hey, our, our target pour cost is 20%, and then you say, all right, well, I have an example in front of me just because for the hell of it. You know, you have a $40 bottle of something, 750 milliliters, two-ounce pour, and it says you should charge $15, almost $16. So yes. the, the question be, then becomes, when do you adjust it? How do you figure it out? But the, it's it's a guideline right. so more you can, than anything else. There's a slider at the very bottom of that that then you can adjust your pour cost so that instead of it being at a 20% or 18% pour cost, you can adjust it to 30 where you're going to be charging people $9 or something like that. It it really depends on what your audience will pay. So the markup across the board is not... You don't make a certain amount of dollars per bottle. You make a certain amount of dollars per dollar that the bottle costs you, ideally. But it fluctuates. Things like that, that $40 bottle of whiskey that you will charge $10 a glass for instead of 15 because it's kind of ridiculous to ask 15 bucks for a glass of $40 whiskey, right? Mm-hmm. That's called a loss leader because you are not going to be making as much as you want on that. But... The drinks that sell the most on the menu hopefully should cost you something like a dollar to make. So then when you're charging $10 for those, you're making a 10% margin or a 10% pour cost on that. And uh, you can afford to lose out on the products you sell less of so that you're not punishing people for wanting to drink good stuff. Yeah. Because if you carry something and you sit on it forever, that's also... I mean, if no one's going to pay the $15 for that whiskey, you're also never going to make money on it unless you lower the price. Right. You're, so, not, a, you're not a liquor storage company. You are a... Your right. bar. And it's costing you money in rent to just have that stuff on the shelf. So you, it needs to move in order to be worth carrying, and it needs to be the appropriate price for your clientele to do that. So no one is, well, I won't say no one. There are certainly people out there, but we, as the people in the industry who are concerned with the times that our guests are having, uh, are going to try to balance everything so that the bar can still make as much as it needs to. It's a business after all. And someone put money up. I mean, for every bar that succeeds, there are 15 that fail, right? So it's clearly not a business that people get into to get rich. But they love what they're doing, and they want to be able to keep the doors open, and they have to make money doing it because, you know, it's not a hobby. It's a job, right? Absolutely. So I struggle with this in my head a lot. But now I don't have to because I have poor cost. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. I can, I can quantify visually directly in front of me what everything is doing in real time. So if a if a rep comes up to me on Friday night during service, which please, if you're listening, don't do that. God no. And, and asks me to taste through something and then like decide on the spot whether or not I'd like to carry it. It makes it a little easier, just in case it is a situation in which I want to take that question on. But <laughs> it, you don't have to spitball it, or you don't have to eyeball it and be like, yeah, it's probably fine if we do that. And then at the end of the month, your numbers come in and you're like, what did I do wrong? Yeah. You don't have to go back and analyze everything if you have a gatekeeper like Poor Cost that just makes sure everything is tight when it comes in so you don't have to figure out which one was not tight and why yeah you don't have to go back and do an audit you just are like well we're just not going to do that it makes sense let's not make a bad decision yeah today so i mean now so you've developed an app Hmm? 
you know, with you, you worked with a developer. Yep. You developed an app. You've released it on the store. What's next? The next step, well, just whittling it down to be more, not whittling it down, I guess that's not the appropriate thing. In this case, it is a growth. There are things being added to it. We, um, we added more values to the product cost <laughs> thing so that there, you don't have to skip by two or five or $10. Mm-hmm. And we remedied their, the unusability of the slider at that point by making a magnifier on it. So when you slide to a number and then hold on it, a magnifier pops up. And when you begin to swipe, uh, it's a slower drag and a much more accurate one. So we can get two better figures that way. So that was, that was a big fix. And I was just talking to some beer guys today, and there's a couple obscure keg sizes that we don't have on it that I would like to add. And uh, the free app is the one that comes up next. Awesome. So it's going to be sponsored. I don't want to say who it's sponsored by yet. There's no contract signed, but it's already in the works. It's happening. Well, and it opens up a lot of doors when it's free. Right. So if a brand, and this is, again, back to that three-way, you know, third, that everybody's really happy in the in the, the menage a trois of the, of the business world mm-hmm. uh, when everything goes right, is if the brand <laughs> gets enough exposure to warrant the money they're paying to be the banner at the bottom of the poor cost app, and I get to take their money, and consumers get to use the app for free, which is such a bigger deal than I thought it was going to be. $1.99, people will pay obscene prices for everything, but apps are not one of them. It's weird. I mean, considering how much how much you use your phone, how much you use a lot of the apps, and you're like, you spend hours on some of these things, and you're like, yeah. oh, do I really want to spend 99 cents on that, on that game? It's crazy. That I you if if you spend one hour, you've spent one dollar for an hour of entertainment. Yeah. And in this case, you're saving yourself so much time and money by tightening your poor cost up that it's like pays itself off the first time you use it, probably. Yeah. So that, however, is not the way the app world works. Some people just have a thing where they, they don't pay for apps. And I I'm not gonna pretend to know why that is, because I am not that guy. I I pay for all kinds of stuff just to see what it's like even, you know? It's sort of like, I don't know, you buy a new bag of chips. You're not going to like wait for someone to sample it in five years so you can see if you like it or not. It's three bucks. You know, you just buy it, and then you eat it, and it's gone, and it's $3 that just you, you wasted, right? Huh. This is like a thing you just you download, and then it's yours forever. You are able to use it. But that's my rant about people not downloading paid apps is over. If you want to get down to it, it's actually more... This is why I would have released a free app first and not even gone with the paid one. It's more economically viable for an app producer to release a free app and then charge for advertisement because then no matter who's using it and how often they're using it, well, I guess if anyone's using it at all, you're yeah, this is this is what I'm getting at. Sorry. You get money as an app developer based on how many people use it forever. Like you get if Chris Lindstrom, if you use that app every day, I get paid for you using that app every day, right? Yeah. With an advertisement. If you buy it though, I get paid once and it's a dollar forty eight. Forever. Yeah. That's my dollar forty eight and I gotcha, you know? Like there's a limited amount of income that can come from that. But if people continue to use poor cost for God knows how many years in the future, this I could end up making fourteen dollars off the fact that only you used it. Right. Over the course of those ten years, you know? Which is is good for everybody because then your advertiser gets more exposure. Exactly. And they know they're paying exactly for the exposure they're getting too. So my remedy for this so that when I release a free app, I don't want to make anyone who bought it feel bad about themselves. So I'm going to raise the price of the paid app and then release a free one. So if you are just a regular old bartender, bar owner, manager, or whatever you're doing, 
You can download the app for free and use it. None of the functionality will be changed about it. But the paid app will go up in price because if you're a brand person, you're not going to want that brand, the other brand's stuff on your app when you're showing it to someone to show them how great your brand is. <laughs> so I need to make sure that I still capitalize on that to some degree because it's worth more than $1.48 to me. So I want it to... I, I don't know. I have to walk a fine line. Maybe like two ninety nine instead of $1.99. Yeah. I'm still spitballing that number around. It's not going to be six bucks because no. it's not worth that. But. No, it, it really, when it comes down to it, it's for somebody who needs it, it's almost indispensable. Mm-hmm. And Entirely. It's a limited audience, but for the audience that wants it, it's like so useful and so to the point. Uh, you know, niche audiences is kind of where it's at. You know, mm-hmm. people that want something, people that need something, yeah, it gets you a loyal audience. I'm really curious to see how many people download it when we have the free one out. Yeah. Because I think a lot more people will be inclined to, even if they're only, I don't know, less than monthly users of it. I would like to see how many people download it and how many people use it daily. I want to see what that change in numbers is because I think we have a pretty good set at this point of data from the last two months of use and downloads and impressions and clicks and all that stuff. I'm anxious to see what happens. Yeah. See where it goes. If I'm, if ten thousand people download it, and I didn't even know there were ten thousand bartenders in the U.S., you know, that'd be cool. Yeah, and I, I'm sure it'll be. In, it's this is when it gets interesting. Yep, you get that wide audience. Yeah, man. And then we're gonna, planning to add more features to it in the future, like uh, finding ways to calculate the the cost of cocktails rather than which gets dicey because lime juice and lemon juice are variable costs, so variable, like extremely yeah. variable costs. So you kind of would have to ignore those features. I don't know. Just trying to find ways to make usable. That's the hard part. The more features you add, the less usable it becomes, and the more it becomes a spreadsheet, for which there are spreadsheets already. So there's a a fine line between too many features and not enough. And yeah. uh, I think we're walking it pretty well right now. I don't think it needs to do a lot. I think it does what it does concisely, and nothing else does that at all. That's a good. That's a good starting point. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Was, so sorry. No, no, you're good. So we got port cost. Yep. We got USPG. Yep. We got your merchandising. Mm-hmm. Merchandising. Which, yeah. Um. So I mean, you you got a lot going on all at once. Yeah, that's not. I, I built myself a website. Oh, that's about right. You two did two and a half months ago too. You did. So yeah. what, which what's the website? Well, it's DonnieClutterbuck.com. And uh, are you going on it right now? Of course. Cool. Well, it's a big picture of me right off the bat. And DonnieClutterbuck.com was built because the guys who programmed uh, Poor Cost for me told me that I should uh, I should have every every bit of information that Poor Cost is exposed by or to should lead somehow back to my name. Mm-hmm. So I made DonnieClutterbuck.com and PoorCost.link. When you click on it in, in uh, any of the advertisements, PoorCost.link just reroutes to DonnieClutterbuck.com/slash/PoorCost. So it goes to a page of, poor, of the DonnieClutterbuck.com website. But then I realized that since I have this website I've been running, it's just kind of, it's kind of silly to only have an app on it. And just last June, I was doing a bunch of lime juice experiments based on how to preserve it, what the acidity level changes are, whether or not oxygen has an impact on it, and whether or not super bag filtering has an impact on it. Which is really interesting, by the way, trying to... So the the goal of this whole thing is you can, let's say you're a you know a prep bartender and you have to make lime juice every day. Mm-hmm. Well, now can you make it last for a week? 
Yeah, what, can what you do you, it in a bigger batch? You squeeze a day's more? worth, and then it turns out that nobody comes in that day, and you just have to dump your lime juice. And it could be, I don't know, depending on the season and what's going on, it could be like 40 bucks just down the drain. So we came up with a way to preserve it for three days reliably, which I've never heard of anyone doing before, except for one other person I've spoken to. But there's certainly no data on the internet about it. So I, uh, I figured I'd post the results, and I have a, a, a data chart full of the not only the ratings of different hours of juice, but what it tasted. We vacuum-sealed uh, eight days of lime juice at 3 p.m. each day. And then on the, the second to last day at 3 p.m., I started juicing every three hours until 3 p.m. the next day. So I had fresh juice that was um, fresh 3, 6, 9, 12, uh, 15, 18, 21, and 24 hours old, and then one through eight day vacuum sealed juice. And we compared them all to see what vacuum juice or vacuum sealed juices compared to which hours of fresh juice and if any of them were passable at all. Turns out we didn't really need to go over four days with it, but you know, you don't know that until I'd, I would have regretted not doing it if I didn't. Right. If you saw the three was good and you didn't try four. Exactly. Like, like well, it could have been 12, you know, and then right. the next experiment would have taken way longer. So yeah. this is enough for me to get a pretty good handle on uh, two things. One is that we can juice a little bit less and well, or, or just be able to preserve the juice. You can still juice daily, do whatever you want, whatever makes sense for your bar program. And two, that there are two independent reactions happening, and one of them is anaerobic to some degree. Because the aerobic degradation, the the acid degradation that happens via, or whatever's happening because there's oxygen in there, can be staved for three days. But there's a pH degradation that happens at 21-ish hours that cannot be stopped. Hmm. It just does occur. So the good-tasting juice at three days of vacuum sealing has the pH of a horrible gross fresh juice. So there's a slight difference in the flavor, but it's still passable. It's still a fine lime juice. Mm-hmm. But the pH had dropped at 21 hours, and it was just down. So there must, there's some sort of like acid contact that happens regardless. There's, a, there's an acid. I, I'd be curious to see if this happens with lemon juice because there's an acid called succinic acid that's in the, uh, the peels of limes. So when you squeeze, there's this separate acid that sort of tastes like pennies or blood. Mm. And that maybe that has some sort of an impact on the pH level over the course of the first day. I don't know. I'd like to get in a lab about that, but I figured I'd post those results on the website, and uh, then I began doing a jigger experiment that got way out of hand, <laughs> and turned, I, I, I created the Clutterbuck rating system. The Clutterbuck rating system. Ah, the rating system. For uh, for uh, am I supposed to have the headphones on? You can have headphones. I didn't even on. think about that. Where, where did these things come from? I mean, you're welcome to wear headphones. Oh man! All see right. now, now, well, now, now this is way better. See now, you can hear everything. Jeez, how did I not do that? Bring All the right. bass. Well. <laughs> the Clutterbug rating system. The Clutterbug rating system. The rating system is uh, it's an average of all of the percentage. I actually like it without the headphones. Better. <laughs> <laughs> it's an average of all the percentages. Uh, oh, that's it's really hard to describe. Whatever. We were testing the accuracy, precision, and trueness of jiggers. And if you are a, a fan of target shooting or I don't know what else would even involve stuff like this, but accuracy is when you shoot at a target and you hit the target, or how close you've come to the target when you when you fire. Uh, precision is how close together your groupings are, even if they're not near the target. So if you're throwing a dart at... Oh, there we go. Accuracy applies to that, too. Yep. If you're throwing a dart at the bullseye and you always hit the double 13, you're very precise, but you're not very accurate because you're not hitting the target. The The nice thing about that is that usually if you're very precise, you can adjust the accuracy. Exactly. Which 
this is a good way to find out if anybody needs to adjust their accuracy, I, I suppose. But in in this case, uh, the precision, yeah, I don't know. I know precision is it's a measure of like how far apart each of your pours are. So every time you pour one ounce out of a jigger, are you really pouring three quarters of an ounce or an ounce and a quarter or whatever? So okay. if your precision is low, there's sort of no way around that. You're, there's no way to adjust. It's just error that occurs due to poor design, pr- presumably anyway. So we were just uh, chat, uh, testing for. <laughs> I've had like no tequila, so I can't blame it. I'm just not used to talking. Yeah, we've, we've had like two ounces and change this That's long. <laughs> yeah, this is not like you know jabberjaw amounts of tequila. No, certainly not. So accuracy, precision, and um, trueness. And trueness is when you uh, throw a dart, four darts at a target, let's say, and they land in the four corners. The average of all of those attempts becomes the target, so you are true. Which means that there is variance, but you know you're just generally you are just drawing a circle around the target, so that's true. It's not accurate, it's not precise, but it is true. Mm. So I've made percentage representations of how accurate, precise, and true um, each line or top or bottom or whatever receptacle of a jigger is. The average of all of those percentages is the clutterbuck rating. Hmm. So it requires a ton of math. And uh, I just today, actually, or last night, built a, a full Excel sheet that functions as my math assistant. Got to use that Excel. Oh, my God. I love Excel. I just saved. I, it took me 12 hours to build out all the equations for it. But the last three tests I posted took me uh, probably over 12 hours each just to do the math myself. So Next time I ask. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I guess I did finally, and now, <laughs> and now that's what's happening. But... <laughs> Yeah, I just did that today, and it feels really good. That's awesome. So I can post a ton more results. I have one set of results just waiting to be posted. I may get to that tonight. It might be tomorrow. But now I have another 15 jiggers I have to test, and it'll only take me two hours of pouring, and then I just have to put the data in, and boom, <laughs> it's it. I know that's I say awesome. only two hours of pouring, but really, it was, if when it's 15 hours, otherwise, it's, you know like, what? it's a ton of time. It's true intense nerdery, and I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's, again, it's, it's obsession. A, it's, yeah, it's a limited scope, but I love that. It, it, what, but what else are you doing other than picking something that is interesting to you and diving into it? Yeah. I love it. That's it. That's it's what so I'm doing. Cool. Right. All right. So we're going to take a hard pivot. And we're going to go, you know, we, we talked about Donnie's background. And we're going to dive into something that I learned. It was, I think we were just talking randomly at, at Cure one night. And oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you, you brought it up. And I, it's, it's one of those things when you hear it, it's like instantaneously a little bit shocking. It's a little bit of a shocking thing to, to, to me yeah. who didn't experience any of it. Right. So when you were younger, you were in a car accident. I was in two accidents. Two accidents. And none of them were car accidents, strangely, unless there was a car accident that I you know, <laughs> didn't know affected me. I was in yeah. a, the car a couple of times, but it, it was never like a bad accident. This one was snowboarding. These were both when I was 16 years old. So it was in 2001. Yeah. 2001, I think. Uh, I was snowboarding, and I hit the left front of my face on uh, on the ground really yeah. hard. Hard enough to shatter my goggles between my face and the ground, which is like... Pretty I don't know serious. if you've ever tried to de- even break those with your hands, but it's almost impossible. But they yeah. were shattered. It was crazy. And uh, the next accident was just the n- following summer, and I hit my the right top of my forehead on the outer edge of a trampoline. I was doing that. I, I was drunk. I was a dumb kid. I was at a fraternity party, and I was on a trampoline. Is that, is, <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, right? I can't believe I did that. Yeah. But 
I was doing it, and uh, I tried to do a front flip, which I'm I'm terrified of front flips specifically now, but I always have been before that. And uh, I over rotated, and my hands went through the springs or the gaps between Ooh. the springs and the pole. And my the first thing that hit was my face on the uh, the outer bar of it. Yeah, like a big normal human being sized trampoline too. So I was I was up there, and. Uh, I, there are. I didn't realize that there was. I knew there was damage. I knew that I like didn't remember some things, or that there was some residual effect on me from it. Like I sort of forgot how to play the piano, and I was an irritable kid. But I was going through like puberty, so who knows about the irritability thing? And I developed a sensitivity to sound sources. Like I don't have a focal point for sound. I, I every sound is at a ten for me. Yeah, and it's hard for me when there's any distraction or no distraction. Unless there's a lot of it, I suppose. So like the, din, the din of a room can be beneficial. This, yeah, actually. Yeah, but so can like, like if there was a conversation going on in your kitchen right now, there's no way I'd be able to have this conversation. Like right. You, you would, there'd be a big difference today in what happened uh, if that were the case. So for years I went through, probably 15 or 16 years, I went through my life thinking that I was just, you know, I hit my head on the ground and something got messed up and I'm, I'm fine for it. It's cool. And then I went through a really tough couple of years, this period of growth. I, I realized I had found myself throughout the course of stagnating behind dive bars for 10 years. Uh, I found myself a comfort zone where I didn't hurt. Mm. So I could sleep almost all day and I could smoke and drink all night and drink caffeine. So all these things that fixed my brain while I was in public were, were there. But my personal relationships always suffered. And I always just figured it was because of my hours or something like that. But I was never like okay to go camping or... I don't know. Holiday parties bother me. There's too much too much stimuli. No one's like there's no orderly conversation. It's it, it's just not I'm not good at it. And it's just less than a bar and there's no separation. I'm in the crowd. I like not being in the crowd. But I realized that I took myself well out of that comfort zone when I had like a dog and a girlfriend and I was working from 3 to 3 instead of like 9 to 5. You know, this these are now longer shifts. I'm much more at the edge of my wits at all times. And uh, I care about stuff now, too. So there's like so many more levels of pressure and exhaustion that had gone into my life that made me realize that there was actually something wrong with me. And uh, I sought it out by getting an MRI and getting neuropsychological evaluations and going to see my primary and like specialists. And it turns out that the major medical system is just kind of a nightmare. It, it's confused and it has poor remedies for problems that are misunderstood. So... I kind of dove out of that, and I went to a specialty clinic in New York that doesn't accept insurance, and they kind of do their own thing. They're kind of looked at as witches, actually. But, I mean, so was Galileo, right? So, Sure. Whatever. They, uh, they did something called a SPECT scan on my brain, which is a single photon emission computed tomography, if I'm not... Yeah, I think that's what it is. It is a... Not functional. It's not like there's no motion involved in it, but you're injected with this, like, goop... <laughs> sounds, it sounds weird now that I'm vocalizing. It sounds weird. You're injected with a goop. You're put in a room that is dark and quiet without your phone for 15 minutes, and they want to, and they throw you in the scanner right after that. So they're scanning you to see what your brain is gobbling up at idle, when your brain is just being your brain. Like, are, are you idling at 1,000 RPMs, or are you idling at 5,000 RPMs? Turns out I idle at 5,000 RPMs. I idle at redline, which is a bummer. And uh, then they, the next day they put you in a scanner, and it's not a bummer, actually. No, it's, it makes me who I am. But it, it's very different. It explains the problems. Yeah. You know, well, so it's it's that's such a it's an interesting thing to take a second to think about because you know the people that can't sleep at night hmm. are the people who 
can't stop thinking. Very strange that I decided to have a nighttime job. Right. Because I couldn't get a day job because I couldn't get up in the morning. You know? Uh-huh. So, yeah, a lot of forecasting there, but we eventually found out that that is true. And, and that, that's oversimplifying it to a huge degree. But the second day I went in and they injected me with the goop again, and they put you in front of a computer and you have to do a test where there's a black screen and every time a letter pops up, you have to hit space bar unless it's X. And it, uh, it times the letters out at sort of random intervals. So you never know what to expect. You're always thinking. You're always like on. You have to pay attention. So it shows what your brain's gobbling up when you're at focus. So I have two scans that show what my brain is doing when it's not doing anything and when it is doing something. And the results of that pretty much explained every problem I've ever had. It like to look at it, it was pretty cool. So what what did that mean to you? It meant that it was not my fault, kind of. If that makes any sense, it took a lot of the weight off my shoulders. About like, <laughs> like if you go in, I don't, I don't even know how to. Yeah, if you hurt your ankle, right, and you're like, oh man, I think I have a sprained ankle. And you go to get an X-ray if you can even X-ray for something like that. I'm not familiar with how that injury works, but if so, you're in in the X-ray machine and you're like. I wonder if I have a sprained ankle. You find out you have one. You're like, oof, it's a sprained ankle. What if you find out you don't? And you're like, what is it, cancer? Do I have like ankle cancer? Do, do I have ankle AIDS? Like what is, what's going on down there? Because <laughs> it, really, if yeah. it's not what you think it is, it's probably something worse, right? So luckily, they didn't find a huge tumor. They didn't find anything crazy. They just found that my brain is programmed in a strange way that to my understanding, kind of emulates like a really mild Asperger's or something. Sure. But it's manifested in chunks. It's not manifest. There's no like Asperger's part of the brain. So they can't say this is Asperger's. They say you your anterior cingulate gyrus is overactive, so you obsess over things a lot. Your limbic system is going nuts, so you're really anxious and you're... Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's the depressive side of things. And your uh, basal ganglia are on fire all the time, which means you're really anxious. And they pointed at a bunch of other parts of my brain and then told me what they do and why that looks that way. And I was like, the whole time they were describing this problem, uh, they, it, it was validating to some degree to me because I already knew that I had those problems. And I, <laughs> what I really wanted was to go see it because everybody else I had gone to see was like, no, you're just nuts. Here's lithium. And I was like, I don't, I'm not taking lithium, man. I don't have what you think I have, apparently, because I know what lithium does, and I know that that's not... I don't have the... What the DSM-5 or whatever is out now says, that's not what I have. So they just prescribed me a bunch of supplements, and I've been taking those, and it's really made every... I don't want to call them disabilities, but every default setting I have that makes me uncomfortable in many situations I get myself into, it's calmed it pretty substantially. It has not fixed it. No, entirely. but but that's 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 an amazing thing. Just because you're right, that validation, yeah. that validation has to be huge. But and when something happens, you don't, you can, you can go back on that maybe. Yeah, because I've I've run into you a couple times after something went wrong. Uh, I think it was like one or two times I, I ran into you somewhere and was like it was too much and oh, and I took too much medicine. No, no, it was just something was overwhelming. Oh yeah, like yeah. That. Yeah, so I mean, every every pretty much every time you talk to me, I'm going to have a story about how I freaked out in some situation and had to run away from it because it's like I mean that's why I don't work at the Revelry. Frankly, it's not because the Revelry is like a joke or something. It's because it's so <laughs> loud and so crazy at night that my brain just it it like uh, I don't know, man. It's like it's like sticking your finger in an outlet. Yeah, it's just too much for me. So I learned 
partially why that is, because your, uh, your right temporal lobe has a lot to do with the way that you visual and audio processing. So if there are too many audio stimuli or not enough, you get sort of overwhelmed because you don't have a focal point for it. So you can't look at one thing and be like, I hear that. You're just, everything is the same volume. So imagine if it's like super loud, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's daunting. But what really interested me was that he looked at me and he was like, I can't believe the doctor that was reviewing my, my brain scans. He's like, I can't believe you made it through middle school. And I was like, what? What, the fuck? <laughs> what are you talking about? So apparently, this is kind of hard to sum up quickly, but I'm going to do it. Uh, your parietal lobes have a lot to do with trans the transferring of information. And they shut down when I stop thinking which is not supposed to happen. So they're active when I'm thinking. They store the information that should be transferred while I'm thinking. But if I'm distracted by anything, if someone taps me on the shoulder, I, the information just goes away. So I end up like in the middle of a conversation. I stop for a second, and it feels like an eternity to me, but it's really it's a short time in the world. And I have to like find what I was thinking about again because I'm so easily just cut off from my own thoughts, right? So not only that, but... I don't have active prefrontal cortex nodes, which is what ADD is. Mm. Whether I'm focusing or not, I don't have that part. It's the part of your, your brain that is like, it's the executive function part. It makes you plan, think, and do, sort of. So I don't have that, which may seem weird right now. Second thing, my cerebellum stops being active when I start thinking. And the cerebellum is like the brain. It's the brain, right? So it's going bonkers when I'm not thinking about something, and it shuts down when I think about something. So if you think about this, I shouldn't be able to talk, right? right? Or like think, or be a bartender, or make a website, or whatever. Right, plan and do all these things. Here's where the superpower comes in. The only way that I got through that was by compensating with an obsessive part of the brain called the, the anterior cingulate gyrus. So every time I was thinking about something, it was the only thing in the world. Right. And it has to be, because that's the only way that I can focus on it. So there's like there's a supplement that I take that sort of shuts that down, but I don't have a way to turn on all the rest of it. So I'm like, I'm not taking much of that. I'll take enough to keep it at bay a bit, but I don't want to lose that because it's a superpower. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, it's it's. it's did any of that make any sense? It did. No, it did. <laughs> I've been I mean, thinking about that for so long that I don't it just, know all the words, but you know, yeah. it's it's the. It's figuring out how to take that and balance your life. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, it is the way it is. And it's not to not to be sappy about things, but finding people that can can understand it and yeah. appreciate you for who you are because you can't change a lot of that stuff permanently. You can no. you can be a better version of yourself. You can work on improving things, but you are you in the end. To a fault. And it's yeah, gonna it's be me. that way. <laughs> yeah. So and that's a that's a hard thing to do. Yeah, it was good to get a handle on the really bad parts of it though. Yeah. That's about it. That's I just wanted to the parts that were super painful for me. And did not have a benefit. Those are the ones I want to go on. Yeah. And I mean, as far as I, I don't know if it was placebo. No, it wasn't. I took too much of two of them once, accidentally, and was very aware that I did that. So I know that they have both immediate and long-lasting effects. And I don't know if they're good for me long term, but everything I'm taking is already in my body. It's just a supplement. So I guess if there was anything to be wary of, it was like the inclusion of uh, I don't know soy lecithin or something if, if that happens to be bad for you but everything that is in them is just brain pieces really it's pretty cool stuff hey as long as, as long as it's working as long as you're feeling better exactly right and I 
I was a little bit skeptical when I went into this clinic because everybody that I had told I was going was like, don't, what are you doing? That's not, they're not doctors. And I'm like, well, I just, the doctors are I, mean, I, man. I would have said the same thing. The doctors are rude. I'm not doing that. Yeah. So uh, I did that. And even if what they said was total BS, which I, I can't imagine it would be, while they were saying it, I was like, how do you know everything about me? Like, just looking at my brain, he was like, well, here's what, you get lost a lot. Like, apparently, whatever part of your brain has to do with, and this is also an Asperger's trait, this is why I'm so convinced that I'm like, <laughs> you know when you're so far gone, like, you don't even know that you're crippled? Yeah. You know, like, if you're, I don't know, retarded is not the word, right? Yeah, but it's, it's, it's an, I don't it, know if I'm supposed to use that word, but if you're so far gone, yeah. you don't know you're gone, you're like, is it a bad, th- I mean, it's, you're just different. It's, right. It doesn't matter, you're not bummed about it, who cares, right? But if you're just far enough gone that you're super aware of it, that's where the pain comes in, and that's where I've been the last three years. And the doctors were like, here's why you're gone. And I was like, dude, everything. I think the parietal lobes actually have a lot to do with uh, um, traveling. So I get lost. I I thought your house was south of me today when right. I left. And my computer was like, no, you're going northeast. And I was like, yeah. All right. Huh. Sounds good. Go figure. Yeah. Because <laughs> I vividly remember driving. I don't know. Whatever. Not important stuff. But. I don't know, even if they were, like, if this was, like, a tarot card reading, and I was like, oh, my God, you're so right about me, I, I feel better. So well, whatever whatever a, they did, you know it what? helped. For, for some people, awareness is comforting. Mm-hmm. For some people, knowledge and information and awareness, right. even of the bad things, is comforting. Now, I truly believe that this is real. Awareness, right, like, a, not, a, not just fabrication yeah, of yeah. awareness, but, like, a true awareness, yeah. I don't know... I guess yeah, I can't imagine not being comforted by that because I would just it would just raise more questions if those things were not wrong with me to begin with. Oh, because you're asking all the questions. Because you right. can't stop asking the questions. I can't. No, not when I'm living in them. No but way. You got to know the answers. Yeah, but that's I'm, true. I, I I appreciate that because that's for me. The knowledge is comfort. Right. It's not. It's not mystical. It's not anything else. It's the knowledge of what something is makes me more comfortable. Yeah. I don't need somebody. I don't need some something to make me comfortable. You know, I don't need answers to everything. Yeah. But for the stuff that has answers, let's use the answers. That's let's exactly how I feel, man. Because <laughs> you can't make the right decisions without the right information. Yeah. And uh, I didn't want to. I didn't want to start like. Well, I did want to start Adderall. I, I love Adderall. I think Adderall fixes me, especially in tiny doses that are unnoticeable. It fixes those problems with the with the you know attention disorders. Sure. But uh, I I mentioned that to a doctor once, and I'm on the I'm on the blacklist, dude. No, nobody will give it to me, which is probably a good thing. It's fine. I was like, hey, doc, I tried it for a week, and I feel like it really like tuned me up. You know, it like closed my focal point down to like what a normal human I think feels. And I was on two and a half milligrams a day, and I don't know. Probably anybody really who listens to this program, I'm sure sixty percent of you are on Adderall, so you know that you're on twenty milligrams a day. I was asking for five, two and a half a day because I thought it it fixed me just enough. And uh, they were like, mm, here's lithium. Oh. I, I, immediately when that happened, that was like my, my third really bad experience with the doctor in, uh, in that month, actually. And uh, I was like, I just, I'm not doing this. Yeah. Forget it. I'm just going to be the weirdo. I'll, I'll deal with it. <laughs> I'll, I'll deal with nodding off every conversation I have. You know? Hey. I'll figure it out. We still love you. It's bound to happen. Thanks, man. We still love you, man. I don't mind being me. Hey, it's all you can do. So, yeah. It's literally my only choice. So, all right, man. Well, this was an easy hour and a half. Oh, my God. We're it right was. there. Holy, holy moly. That's an easy hour and a half. Cool, man. So, 
Let's, Thanks for uh, having me, Chris. Yeah, let's, let's, always, it's always fun. Let's do your plugs real quick. Plugs. Again. So you've got Poor Cost, the app. Poor Cost, the app, the bar calculator. You've got DonnieClutterbuck.com. Dot com. It's my name, dot com. And uh, you're, on, you're on the social medias a little bit. Yeah, Donnie Clutterbuck on Facebook. And uh, if you search Donnie Clutterbuck on Instagram, that's where I am. But uh, it's the, the at is always busy work, one word. Not spelled funny. I spell words the way they're supposed to be spelled. I appreciate with that. With every letter that is intended. Way to be it. <laughs> and uh, I am at Stromy on Twitter and Instagram, Food About Town on Facebook. And Donnie, thanks for coming over, buddy. This was a blast. Chris, thanks so much. Let's do it again. Awesome.